No, you start. I start, I start you know, almost every time. You know you want to start, Diego? Do it. I'm going to go back to drinking. You start talking. Well, welcome to Hubble Time Machine. We are back with another episode. And we are really excited. Really, really excited. It's, it's October 30th. Diego goes back to dates, and back I do not care about dates. Life is no, already full I was of just pressure. Saying it because it's almost Halloween, and we're already fighting. We're we're, fight, we're both wearing all black outfit outfits. Mm-hmm. It's very nice. We're sitting at the hop up shop, drinking a bottle of wine each. On the unceded territories of Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. Uh, unceded means that these territories were never handed over or relinquished in any way, and that's where we're. Recording this introduction right now. It's, it's a very good introduction, I promise. It's the best introduction of all introductions. <laughs> yeah, it's a deep bite into introductions <laughs> of all time. We started a whole new podcast series, which is just introductions. Yeah, even I like though I, I feel like our introductions take longer to record than the actual podcasts. It does. It does. By the way, you said that I, that made me think of Amy Henderson's piece when she brought it to Dance Center a few year, years ago, public recordings, and it was. The whole hour was a bunch of piece openings, I think. I don't think I saw. So this. she kept coming through the door and did, Sorry, did, did, uh, she did a bunch of entrances. Yeah, at the dance center. At the dance center, yeah. And she had a big set of. Anyways, I just made me think of that. Cool. Go see it. Go go get educated, Diego. What's going on? Couldn't afford college, okay? Uh, okay. So a dancer instead. <laughs> Who's our guest today? Our guest today is Jennifer Mascal. Who's our guest today, Diego? Jennifer <laughs> Mascal! <laughs> uh, we recorded that interview about three weeks from today, so that would be the beginning of October 2016. I actually don't remember when we recorded this, so I'm not going to talk about it. Was at, at Mascal Studio uh, yes. on Jervis and Davey. Yes, it's always lovely to be there. It's, it's, very, it's a very peaceful environment. The acoustics are great for anybody who continues listening to this podcast after just the introduction um, yeah for a deep and meaningful recording yes yeah. don't say my company name <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought you I can own it because I'm just just because I don't have a good reason it's just here. because we're not officially non for profit like biting school uh, official is, is just deep down inside you <laughs> it doesn't matter did I tell you my new company name I think I said it I can't say it on air though don't say it on air <laughs> to keep it a secret we're still very deep and meaningful for the time being yes happy Halloween I think I'm supposed to keep going well some notes on the recording I was not snacking <laughs> and I, I brought snacks for you this time you brought snacks today I didn't want snacks because I was I, we're actually at the hop up shop because I was supposed to be boxing but Arash goes away in two days, so we decided to record instead. And then Arash is going to watch me box after. I need it for my ego. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, okay. Do you have anything else to say? Yeah. Uh, well, enjoy this, this sensational Halloween and... Enjoy Jennifer Mescal. But by the time they the get this, the Halloween, Halloween is gone over. by far. Well, it'll maybe be close to next Halloween, depending on how much <laughs> it is. Um, really enjoyed this interview. I had a really, really great time. Jennifer, so much awesome information for us. Um, yes, it, it's really nice to, it, you know, I can't say enough how amazing it is to sit down with someone that, you, uh, that you've known for a while and, and you know as an artist and to talk with them uh, for an hour or so and, and how uh, inspiring that is. So. 
Um, and just, I guess I'd like to say this is our eighth, ninth recorded episode? I think so. It's been really, um, it's better than I thought it'd be. What's better? I don't know. I'm just learning so much more than I thought was even possible doing these interviews. Better is subjective too, but... No, everything's objective. Maybe this is drunk talk. No. (laughs) (laughs) This is colonial talk. Um, (laughs) No, really thank you to everybody so far who's listening. uh, And big, 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 big thank you to everybody we've interviewed and everybody that we hope to interview soon soon enough. Yes, and actually, we're looking into getting a new cover by someone's secret. We're not going to tell you who it is. but We're a very secretive some- couple. <laughs> yeah, we're a very secretive duo. Uh, that someone is going to... That someone is going to design a uh, cover for our podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's it. I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to pull it Donald Trump and say I'm going to keep it in suspense. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Um, and anybody who'd like to donate to the podcast, please send a check or cash to uh, Ottawa <laughs> House of Parliament. I forget the actual address, but they'll take your money. Yes. Yes. Uh, Justin Trudeau will put it towards the arts somehow. Justin. Oh, maybe we should. Did you say Parliament? Parliament. Wait, which ones? Yeah. I, I think this intro is over. I think your life is over. <laughs> Okay, goodbye. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to How About a Time Machine. My name is Diego Romero. And my name is Arash. Thank you for being with yes, us. Thank you for joining us. Um, we have Jennifer Mascal with us today. Yeah. Uh, today is... Uh, I think it's the 3rd of October. We're totally wrong. No, it's the 3rd of October. It's the 2nd. 2nd of October. October. It's the third. <laughs> I was wrong. Third of October, two thousand sixteen. I should not say anything. Uh, yeah, um, maybe we'll get right into the questions. Uh, but before first, how, how are you feeling, Jennifer, today? <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, why don't I say where we are? We're sitting on Jer- Jervis and Davy at Mascal Dance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's windy out. A little bit. I think that's all the important information I have. That's all the important Okay, so first of all, for people who don't know you, or listeners who don't know who you are, would you just let us know a little bit about what it is that you do? Mm-hmm. Well, we're sitting in the Maskell Dance Studio, where we've been for 26 years in the parish hall of St. Paul's Anglican Church. There's a labyrinth on the floor, so we share the space with people who practice walking the labyrinth. Mm. And since the labyrinth has been there, they consider it a sacred space, Mm. so we work in this space. I'm the artistic director of Maskell Dance, a company that was made into a nonprofit in 1982, but became active in 1989. So far, I'm the sole artistic director of it. And I make dances, I write, I work in education, and I try and think about movement and its function in the world. Mm. Um, I'm wondering when choreography 
uh, started for you? Mm. Um, I was worried about that. <laughs> I went to York University in the first four years. They had a dance program, 1970 to 74. It was started by Grant Stratty after he'd been 20 years as the resident choreographer of the National Ballet. Mm -hmm. He came to the university and started the dance program. Mm -hmm. He felt that uh, for people that were going to university and starting dance, they needed to have as much technique as possible. Mm -hmm. It was during the Trudeau years mm. of Pierre Trudeau, and there was a lot of liberal money towards the arts. He brought in fantastic teachers and plied us with technique classes. And it wasn't until my fourth year that I felt, uh-oh, I haven't made a dance up yet. Mm -hmm. Entering my fourth year. The first piece I ever made up was in the summer of 1973, and it was in California. And uh, I had followed a teacher that had come to York University called Gus Solomons. Mm. And Gus Solomons, um, my introduction to Gus Solomons was I came in late, which you were not allowed to do to a dance class, <laughs> and I sat down on the floor pretending that I wasn't late, just immediately doing what I was doing. And I kept my head down while we were working, and it was a Graham class, taught by uh, Huva Andery, a notorious Israeli Graham teacher who taught at York. And in the middle of the class, there were these sounds. And I thought, I don't know what's going on. There's some kind of sound going on in this class. And there's a rhythmic, a rhythmic kind of sound accompanying the exercise. So I finally looked up, and there was this really tall, beautiful man in the corner. And he was making the sounds, and it was Gus Solomon's. I found his classes, which were Cunningham. He'd been in the Cunningham Company really inspiring. So I went to study with him with two colleagues, Andreas Smith and Melody Benger in um, Laguna Beach mm. in California. And Gus started uh, something that was really instrumental in my life, an, in, an environmental dance company mm. for the summer. And we made pieces all over the campus. Mm -hmm. So the first piece I made was in an uh, arcade, and the dancers were machines, and people put money down, and they did a dance, depending <laughs> on how much money they put down. So they had several options to be out of order, to be, give them half a dance, <laughs> all those kinds of things. Um, then I went back to York, and the next dance, the two really influential people at York University for me were Selma Odom mm -hmm. and David Rosenblum. And David Rosenblum was a, he seemed really old to me, but he was 21 when he started <laughs> and teaching there, and he taught electronic music. Huh. And what he did was bring in all the composers he knew. So we got to meet and hear all the composers that he knew, which w w at that time, 70 to 74, um, Richard Teitelbaum, Morton Feldman, 
and um, the first dance I did was to somebody he brought in called Frederick Jevsky. And the dance I did was called Attica. And it was um, a music to the writings of somebody who had been in the Attica prison break. Hmm. And somebody had taken their writings and edited them. Hmm. And he had put them to music. And it was really extraordinary music. And the piece was people, uh, dance, the dancers uh, gathered on the stage. The piece was 10 minutes long. They just gathered on the stage and they looked up at the audience, which was uh, in a kind of upside-down cone, mm-hmm. an auditorium. And then they slowly climbed over the seats mm-hmm. as they left the prison. Like, they didn't do anything. They just mm-hmm. climbed over them. And so that was in my fourth year. And then uh, Grant had brought in, had made a dance series. So we, they brought in the Lamone Company. Mm-hmm. They brought in lots of inspiring people. So the first person they brought in that year was Laura Dean. And she did the same piece. So I felt like I was on the right track mm-hmm. as, a, as a choreographer, I felt, because she did the same thing. They climbed over the audience. And that was, I thought, Oh, okay. So the reason why Selma was so extraordinary was because she was interested in what was going on and the center of dance at the moment of Western dance at that moment was in New York City. And she brought she did she brought up people like Deborah Jowett, who was a critic, mm-hmm. and Marcia Siegel and Kata Kay and Meredith Monk, and they brought people and they described the dances that were going on in New York, in downtown New York, were uh, conceptual dances. And so you were able to under, understand, even though you didn't, I didn't experience them because I was in school, mm-hmm. I was able to understand the concept Mm-hmm. And they were completely inspiring, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like the things that came out of the Judson group and who was doing what and things. And so that was my education. Mm-hmm. And I knew from coming to dance late, I knew uh, I was interested in the mind. I was interested in the mind of what people were thinking and what artists were thinking and doing. So at that time in Toronto, there was the Toronto Dance Theater, then and there was the National Ballet, and there was a couple of other companies, there was Judy Jarvis, mm-hmm. and then there were two renegades from the National Ballet, Lawrence Adams and Miriam Adams. And they started a a dance troupe and a little theater called 15 Dance Lab. And 15 Dance Lab was down on George Street and had 30 seats in it. So I I did my first choreography to uh, Essie of Beckett in that place. And they started a company. I wasn't part of the company, but a Vancouver choreographer who's recently come back to town, Cornelius Fisher-Crado, was in that company. 
and they they were interested in people doing what they wanted to do. They weren't influenced by the Judson group, but they were part of the 70s and questioning everything. Mm -hmm. So they made a home for people that wanted to question things. Mm -hmm. So when I graduated, my first solo concert was there. They presented me. They got me a stage manager. They did the publicity. And that was pretty amazing. The first grant I ever applied for was during my fourth year at school. And it was for something like $1,200 and that kind of 30. It was like, it was for International Women's Year. And it was to start a company like Gus Almond's Inspired. Mm-hmm. And we called it Grid. Mm-hmm. And we did 17 performances around the city in the month of June in 1974. In Vancouver? No, I'm still in Toronto. Mm -hmm. It's important that you understand what was going on in Toronto. Mm -hmm. That there was a... a, Because of Selma, Mm -hmm. there was... And because of Miriam and Lawrence Adams, there was a whole movement of independent artists... It paralleled the movement of performance art that was developing and video art that was developing at the same time. But it was different because it was Mm movement-based. It was a kind of denigrating thing that you you did that kind of work if you couldn't dance or if you didn't have technique. But I didn't follow that because I had been technically trained. So it didn't follow that. There was also a feeling there that if you had technique, why wouldn't you aspire to be in the, the company that was in town, which was the Toronto Dance Theatre? Mm-hmm. It was a Graham-based company. So for those of us that had been inspired by Selma mm-hmm. and the Judson Group and mm-hmm. the downtown New York scene, mm-hmm. it wasn't a question. Mm-hmm. Doing Graham technique, which is a totally amazing technique when you study it, mm-hmm. and I'd studied it for six years, six times a week, But the thought of dancing that work, for me at that time, because of the influence of this, would have been akin to working in a bank. Mm -hmm. However, there was a feeling, though, if you were going to make it as a dancer, Mm -hmm. you had to go to New York. So we all went to New York. So I went to New York, and uh, there was a Canadian loft there on Howard Street, Broadway and Canal. And I got a Canada Council grant. And to get the Canada Council grant at that time, you had to fly to the place where the jury was and dance in front of them. Mm. So I flew to Vancouver, because that's where the jury was. Mm -hmm. And I went to Anna Wyman's studio, which was on the North Shore, Mm -hmm. did a class, and then danced in front of them, and got a a short-term grant for... I think it was $2,300, and I lived on that for two and a half years in New York City. I was a a scholarship student at the Cunningham Studio, and I found that work because of the revolution, the Cage and Cunningham revolution, and how that transformed how we think about movement and its possibility and all the people in 
downtown New York that were influenced by that, like Trisha Brown and like Steve Paxton. And the person that I danced with was Douglas Dunn. Mm -hmm. And I was part of a project that was both choreographed and improvised. So in my training at York, there were composition classes. I, as a late starter, was not disciplined enough to make up dances for those make-up studies. Mm -hmm. So I would improvise. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to improvise so they didn't notice that it wasn't choreographed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I knew already I was an improviser. Mm-hmm. And the first performances I had done with a guitar player were improvised. So I was already on that track. I knew that's mm-hmm. where I was. So this this work with him was perfect. Mm-hmm. And uh, we toured around um, locally, like New York State and uh, Minnesota, that kind of, like mm-hmm. states. Mm-hmm. I went to the uh, Connecticut College, which was a big thing. And mm-hmm. he did pieces like events. That piece was an event and planes flew in and dropped people down and down on it and we were dancing and different things were going through the air. It was just that kind of thing. I don't think it was unusual for the time. Mm -hmm. At the same time, while I was in New York, uh, I studied contact improvisation because that was was what was going on. Mm -hmm. That's just what... So, I didn't have a green card, and while I was at York University, I was very interested in the communication of dance. And in the new music, all the new music people were writing scores. And whenever I went to work with other people, they made scores too in dance. They made Mm. scores and they gave them to you. I was, and we performed them like large events and things. Yeah. So when we did the environmental company, we they everyone had scores. Mm-hmm. But I was noticing that the communication in music is quite different than the communication in dance. So I applied for another grant, also like twelve hundred dollars and thirty six cents, <laughs> to make a book. Mm-hmm. And I gathered a portfolio while I was in New York from 60 choreographers of their drawings of dance. Mm-hmm. Because it seemed to me that the uh, communication in music was through paper. And in visual art, it's endlessly written and and drawn, and often drawn, but in with paper, mm-hmm. with theater, you there was often a script, mm-hmm. and it was through paper mm-hmm. and poetry. You wrote it, even when it was oral. Sometimes they wrote it down and passed it on. That it seemed like they had access to paper, whereas we took notes. We tried to make the scores, mm-hmm. but it didn't communicate in the same way. Mm-hmm. Right. We were trying to fit in. Mm-hmm. We were trying to fit in. Did it work? Well, people, I still make scores now. Mm-hmm. So it's not a question of did it work. It's just noticing that paradox 
has influenced much of my career because I, I'm, I look all the time for what is it that we do here? What, is, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. So that was a two-year study, the making that book in what, what are we doing? What, what are we doing here? Why are we trying to communicate on this paper? But we're doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah. So the last part of my time in New York, that period of time in New York, I went back for another year later. Um, I had a plane ticket to come back, or a bus ticket, to return to Toronto. And I figured out, and I had to come back to finish the book. Because mm -hmm. I had to make it. And there was this thing that Grant Stratty started called the Dance in Canada Conference. Mm -hmm. I hadn't gone to the first one, but which was in Halifax. But in the time I was in New York, I went to this, I went to, wasn't the second one, the one in Winnipeg in 1977, there was a revolution. And there was a revolution because of what I'm speaking of. The Canada Council, which was uh, the funding body, mm. the National Endowment for the Arts was modeled on the Canada Council. Mm -hmm. And the, in their talking about dance, they thought the best thing to do is to really make strong centers for dance and fund this company and this company and this company and this company and this company. I think there might have been seven. Mm -hmm. So that went very well. Mm -hmm. Those people got a lot of mileage and touring and they, they got space to do things and they were solid and established. Mm -hmm. However, through Miriam and Selma and the the influence, the New York influence of conceptual dance mm -hmm. and thinking dance. Mm -hmm. There was a whole burgeoning of independence. Mm -hmm. And there was no outlet for them to be funded. And this came up. You could apply, there were grants, individual grants you could apply for. Mm -hmm. But this came up at this revol the revolution was that the independents had to be noticed. They could no longer be put under the rug, dismissed as people that can't dance, don't have a voice, they're not really artists. If you were good, you would join this company. They could uh, no longer be there. Sorry, this was 1977 in Winnipeg. Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. Because the, the Na Dancing Canada Conference moved around. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So somebody you need to interview is Monique Michaud, mm -hmm. who's a remarkable, remarkable woman who was the head of the dance section at the Canada Council. And see her history of how things developed. Mm -hmm. When I arrived in Vancouver. Oh, so I, when I arrived in Vancouver, it was 19, I went in 1978 with this book. Mm -hmm. uh, I returned to Toronto, 
and I went to Coach House Press, and I said, I've got this book, what am I going to do? And they said, just go down the street. These people make paper and they make books. So I went down the street. There was a house. I walked in. I had a suitcase with all the choreographer's notes, and I opened it up. I, I showed them, and they said, you can live here for the next three months and make the book. So I lived in their house and I made the book. It turned out they already, they had come to my solo concert years before that I mentioned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had done a Gertrude Stein piece uh. that somehow inspired them. So they already knew, who, they already, so I already, the way, the way was paved. Mm -hmm. So I made the book as a, it's like a portfolio. I kind of took over my family home, mm -hmm. which I hadn't lived in for years. I was taught how to make marble paper and put marble paper on the inside, and they showed me how to... They did everything by hand at this press, Dreadnought Press. Mm. So they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let me measure. They, I, they would measure it, and I, I would measure it, and I'd put the person's name at the top, and they'd say, that's not the center. <laughs> That, that you learn how to eyeball the center mm -hmm. in design. I see. Hmm. That was hard on, on, on rank beginning. Anyway. I believe you. So I made the book. <laughs> I thought, how much should I sell this for? I thought, how about 10 bucks? Mm -hmm. So I took it to the Dance in Canada conference mm -hmm. in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. In 1978. Yes. This is one year after the revolution. One year after. Mm -hmm. So after the revolution, I went back to New York. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you completed the final steps of producing the book in one year. No, I was there. I got the grant, lived there for years, collected all yeah. the things. Then I then I came mm -hmm. home and lived with them mm -hmm. and made it. Mm -hmm. I, I worked. I lived with them. Like, I can't remember, like March, April, May, and it was in August, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I went there and I set up a table. I'd made these little cards saying what it was, and here it was. Mm -hmm. Ten minutes, I told 32. Mm -hmm. I just panicked because I'd already decided I was a choreographer, so I closed up shot because I thought I was then I was going to have to make, I was going to have to make 30, like I wasn't, it was going to be a factory. I didn't want to be a factory. Uh -huh. So You sold about 30. I had 32. 32. 32 and for $10, mm -hmm. except I, I made one extra and I sold it to the Lincoln Center Library in New York City mm -hmm. for 300 Nice. Wow. <laughs> so that felt, that felt like, oh, right. Okay, I did There we go. The, so while I was in Vancouver, oh, before I went to Vancouver, I had done a piece at 15 Dance Lab while I was, that was an exhibition. It was a large teeter-totter, mm. so 22-foot-long beam, 12 feet off the ground, and the dancers lay on the underside, and there were flowers all over the floor. So it was the first time I'd made an exhibition as a dance performance. Mm -hmm. And people paid, so it was donation. People paid more money than they did for tickets. Wow. What we discovered in that is that if your attention wavered, the, the teeter-totter, because we were on the underside, mm -hmm. the teeter-totter was imbalanced. Mm -hmm. So it was danger, because you could go down. And, you could go down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was about attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
after that, there was something uh, that Grant Stratty also in his prescience started, which was called the National Choreographic Seminar. Mm -hmm. For you to get the picture, it was six, six composers and six choreographers and dancers and musicians. Mm -hmm. And because I'd come out of the Cage and Cunningham tradition and worked with Douglas Dunn in silence for mm -hmm. two years and everything I saw was dance, I asked a gentle question is it important that we work with music? Mm -hmm. Toronto, despite the revolution, mm -hmm. was not there yet. Mm -hmm. So Cage and Cunningham were in the 60s. Mm -hmm. At Bloom in 2014, all the choreographers for the first time in the 12 years of Bloom mm -hmm. began their work without music. Mm -hmm. So 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2010, 2014. Hmm. Jennifer, could you just quickly explain what Bloom is for anybody who doesn't? Bloom is, a, is an artist-in-residence program for choreographers to work on the middle stage of a piece a piece that they already have the idea for and that they're going to show later. So we're trying to work without adrenaline and we, uh, and I work with them as editors and we pair the dance with wine based on the choreographer's adjectives of how they describe it and we have a stand-up storyteller comic describe the dance at first take to the audience. So it's a program that's about choreographers having to take the responsibility what someone might see at first glance. Mm -hmm. Because on the inside, we don't. We get too involved in our interests to notice what an outsider would notice. In Vancouver, at the Dance in Canada conference, I, because I'd been studying contact for the previous six years, I stayed for two weeks and did a, a contact workshop with Peter Bingham, Peter Ryan, and Helen Clark, mm -hmm. who had started a company called Fulcrum. Mm -hmm. And at that conference also, I met uh, Sarah Shelton Mann, who had danced with the Murray Lewis Company in New York City and was based in Halifax. Mm -hmm. She's now based in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. The piece that I did at that particular conference was called Q over O and it was a piece that had been made at that seminar and had two non-dancers, a technician and a stage manager and two dancers myself and Peggy Baker mm -hmm. and we did a unison 
who danced in unison, all of us. Mm -hmm. So it was about, it was yet another examination of what is technique? What is, can you tell the difference? After uh, dancing with Peter for a couple of weeks, they came out and we all performed together in Toronto. Sarah Shelton Mann, Fulcrum. And then later I went to Halifax Mm. to teach and make a piece on Nova Dance Theatre. So Sarah and I became colleagues and we made a duet called Smashed Carapace that toured all the cities across Canada beginning in Halifax and ended up in Vancouver. We did Victoria and then we ended up in Vancouver. It taught me a couple of things. One that uh, it was the second example of naming a piece and going through the process of naming a piece where you just try and get to the essence of how you're feeling about something at the moment and then you name that but in your striving to get to something and articulating that the entire context of the words aren't taken into consideration and it mocks you Hmm. so one dance I made like that was called No Picnic and the process of making it was just no picnic was just not fun at all (laughs) and this one called Smashed Carapace Sarah injured herself all the way across So it made me recognize that that you have to look from every point of view in the circle before you name something. Mm -hmm. You can't just go, oh, that feels good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When Sarah and I arrived in, in Vancouver, Fulcrum had disbanded. And Andrew Harwood had, I think, moved already to Montreal. And I fell in love with the person who did lighting for the concert at Simon Fraser. At that time in Vancouver, there was a remarkable performing arts series. It was up on the hill. And there was a remarkable performing arts series where they brought in all of the world and downtown choreographers. Mm-hmm. They, the Western Front also brought in people like Laurie Anderson, but they brought in like Andy DeGroat and Meredith Monk and oh. David Hikes, and they, brought, and they were always full and packed. It was really a fertile place, mm-hmm. Simon mm-hmm. Fraser. So I want, and uh, the other companies that were in town were Paula Ross, mm-hmm. one of the seven, Anna Wyman, mm-hmm. Prism, that was run by Giza Cole and Jamie Zagadakis. And that was based out of Vancouver? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Terminal City, which was Karen, Savannah, and Terry. Mm-hmm. And I had heard about a piece by Paula Ross called Coming Together, which was the long version of the piece I made up called Attica about the prison break. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I thought, 
coming back from New York. Maybe she's the only other choreographer in Canada, because I felt a bit condemned to Canada, mm -hmm. returning to Canada. Maybe she's the only other one that, that knows the new music scene. Because mm. I was really in choreographers. Like, cause, mm. And so I felt like I wanted to know her. She came to see the show, and I began working with her. Mm -hmm. So I worked with her uh, for two projects, and then she fired me. I was already a choreographer, and uh, there was some intimation that maybe I wanted to take over the company because I was working with two of the dancers in the company, mm -hmm. which wasn't true at all. Because I'd fallen in love, I kept trying to find ways to return to the city. I was already doing projects across the country. And as an improviser, I was going places and performing. So I did a, a tour of Scandinavia, Finland, and Denmark. Went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Went to London. And then worked with uh, an improviser, cellist Ernst Reisiger, and we went to Berlin. And. Uh, Amsterdam, Southampton, we came to Southampton as another. So I was already, so it was hard to find a way to stay here. Mm -hmm. Mm. So this is a, a significant thing. The independence that had caused the revolution had an effect in, in Toronto. Toronto seemed to be, I don't know, it had an effect in Toronto, but it hadn't yet had an effect out here. Mm -hmm. So there was no way to get a grant as an independent. Mm -hmm. The only way you could was to start a company. Mm -hmm. One time in, the, in that decade, I looked at the companies across Canada, ballet and contemporary, and it looked like they had all been started by women, and they were gradually being run by men. Mm -hmm. It's not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. Sorry, would you mind just those companies at that point that had yeah across Canada? If you could name a few, Contemporary Dancers Canada, started by Rachel Brown. Hmm. Nouvelle Air, I think, was started by. Jean Renaud and went into Le Groupe de la Place Royale. Mm. So that was a triumvirate with Toronto Dance Theatre was started by Patricia Beattie. Royal Winnipeg was started by Betty Farrelly and Gwyneth Lloyd. National Ballet was started by Celia Franca. And those were all getting major funding from Kennedy at that point. I think that's a uh, Monique Michaud question, and all that's all public information, so you can find out the information of who was being funded. And where were we? Uh, we were in Vancouver. We're in Vancouver. And so I kept traveling and trying to return, and I knew a couple of people. And one of them, Peter Ryan, who was a dance critic, mm -hmm. I finally said, 
the way to do, the way to survive here is to start a company of independence. Mm -hmm. And he agreed. So we asked Peter Bingham, and then we asked Jay and Barbara, and then I went to see a concert of the first graduate from Simon Fraser dance program. So the influence in, in Vancouver, the thing I noticed about Vancouver was surprising because it was as though no technique had stuck here. They'd had Cunningham influence, but nobody was doing that. Though now they have this incredible Megan Walker Strait, who's teaching Cunningham, who was in the company. Mm -hmm. And they'd had some Graham, but it didn't really take. And now they have Judith Gary, who's able to really give the depth of that technique. They had had Nikolai influence through Iris Garland, who kept bringing up Phyllis Lamhut to do composition courses and things like that. But they didn't have a program that graduated people, but there was, it still had influence within the city. Hmm. So I went to see the dance of the first graduate, and it was an amazing dance called Brain Drain by Lola McLaughlin. Hmm. So we asked Lola if she wanted to be part of it. And then this man was hanging around, uh, who accompanied dance classes that we knew. We met in Ottawa on our tour, and and uh, he and Lola became an item, and they we asked him to, Ahmed Hassan. Mm -hmm. So the seven of us directed Edom and, and started a non-profit because that was the way to get funding. Mm -hmm. Was it Karen who wasn't there from the beginning, or was she? Karen wasn't part of Edom, but Karen had a company, Terminal City Dance. I think, yeah, sure. So I, I, of the choreographers that were in Vancouver, I worked with Paula Ross, and I worked with Judy Marcuse when she did a piece that was a piece with many dancers, like about 10 dancers, and we performed it for two weeks in Toronto, out of which she started her repertory company. And then I worked on a project with Karen, who I had met at the choreographic seminar. Mm -hmm. So I was like an ally. After seven years of directing Edom, um, I activated Maskell Dance, which had become incorporated at the same time as Edom, because I didn't know what Edom was going to do. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to choreograph, and if I was going to stay in Vancouver, I had to. But it was latent for seven years until mm -hmm. uh, I needed it. Mm -hmm. Having spent that time at the Western Front, I recognized how important real estate was and how mm -hmm. having a home. So 60 phone calls before I found this space and visits to places. Mm -hmm. Grant Stratty also recognized that that was the way for things to go, mm -hmm. and the dance center has, has proven that, yeah. that. To have a center as a home for people to work at mm -hmm. is valuable. Mm -hmm. As you map 
Vancouver and its influences, there are many that you won't be able to really actively trace. For example, there were two women called the Andover Sisters who influenced Cornelius Fisher Credo, but they taught here for years. And Diane Miller, before she started her, she was the first Pilates teacher, I think, in Vancouver. She taught at Anna Wyman, and she influenced dancers like Susan McKenzie and taught them when they were quite young. Mm -hmm. And she apparently taught things that weren't traditional, mm -hmm. that kind of questioned the assumptions of what movement is. Mm. I wonder, how do you see your practices changed over time? Well, uh, the tour we're doing this winter, we're looking at a, a piece from the 80s, a piece from the 90s, a piece from 2000, and a new piece mm -hmm. to, in order to answer that very question. Mm -hmm. Because in an exhibition we did called Remnants of Memory, which was in the Pendulum Gallery across from the Art Gallery, mm -hmm. We took costumes, and Catherine Hahn made dancing corrugated cardboard mannequins, mm. and we wrote to dancers who had worn the costumes or been in the dances, and they wrote back stories of learning that dance or being on tour, mm. and they, were pl they played in MP3 players as people walked around. As we looked at this exhibition, I saw that... that I hadn't noticed that I was interested in, in costumes that were extensions of the body. Mm -hmm. So this tour is taking examples of costumes that are extensions of the body mm -hmm. and looking at them. And many dancers are learning the dances. Mm -hmm. And it gives me a chance to see, is this, am I still interested in this? Mm -hmm. What was I inter What was I really doing when I was doing that? Mm -hmm. And how? How? What has changed over the years in the approach to that? Mm -hmm. So one of the dances that was pretty great. John Oswald took. There's a famous uh, pianist here, Al Neal, mm -hmm. and he's also a painter. And John Oswald worked with Al Neal, uh, who was playing a concert, I think, at the Western Front, singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow while he was playing. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic piece of music. So I had made a dance to it for the Canadian Tap Dance Company and was interested in them tapping and collapsing all the time. Well, it is. <laughs> so I remounted that. I like the idea of it. I love the music. And I looked at it and I thought, it's not what I'm interested in now. Mm -hmm. So it's not in, it's not, it, it fell off the table. Mm -hmm. I see. It was a bit of a lament because I, it was pretty great. But, so, in the mid-90s, I went uh, and studied with Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen. And I'd known about her since the 70s. She's, she's a bit of a rock star in the contact improvisation world. Mm -hmm. Because through the Contact Quarterly, she had, been, she had uh, published her research on anatomy. 
So everybody knew about her and everybody was doing things. Mm -hmm. However, yet another uh, thing about Vancouver and also Canada, they hadn't quite heard about it yet. So it's, it's kind of bewildering mystery how things are transmitted. Mm-hmm. So I went and studied for four years with her. And that's uh, given me words to articulate the improvisational practice that I've been working on. Mm-hmm. And ways into, um, ways into the body mm-hmm. that I only knew in inarticulate ways through dancing mm-hmm. before. So that's been a big change. Mm-hmm. There were 18 years there where I was working on the idea of space, enclosure, house, home, belonging, space between people, space around people, many dances. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a kind of trajectory that I think may have been put to bed now. Homework, homework toured for 10 years, and it was stories of home from all around the world from kids mm-hmm. about. And housework was a piece in Highcroft Mansion where people walked through the house mm-hmm. and, and saw the dances. And it started, it started, I think, in 1983 with a commission from Bill Douglas and Susan McKenzie. And Bill was an architect, and he uh, had never practiced architecture. He fell in love with dance. And so when they came out here, I said, I'd like a, I'd like a set, and I'd like it to be a plane crash. <laughs> and so he said, all right, just leave it to me and come back on Monday. And I came back on Monday, and he had made... Uh, an exercise you're given in architecture school, which is a perspective study. It's studs, mm-hmm. like, a, like a stud cube, but one side is this high, and then it goes up, mm-hmm. and then it goes up more and goes up like this. So it's like this. Mm-hmm. Like a ramp in a way? Is it? No, it was a room. It was a room, but the wall, the wall was about this high on and about 10 feet at the other, mm-hmm. 2 feet at one mm-hmm. and 10 feet at the I other. See. So, you, so you looked at it. And so... That took about 14 duets for me to, over a number of years, for me to understand how that, how to work with that. Mm-hmm. And that began, that sort of jettisoned this whole study of home. And, mm-hmm. um, there was a big change in my work in 2006 when I began uh, parallel to the parallel to choreography I'd been working with our club called the Nijinsky Jibber Jazz Club mm. and they they would improvise we'd go places and improvise I was often still performing with them and in 2006 I was no longer performing and I would give them propositions and we'd go places and perform we developed this whole idea of public research mm. and we'd and we'd videotape the performance, we'd look at that, and that gradually evolved into a choreographed piece mm-hmm. for the stage, main stage, with video mm-hmm. sets. Mm-hmm. 
But along with that came the idea of talking about what we're doing. So we made our we made a catalog with that with that piece, Bean Bar Zambuca. Mm-hmm. And the piece then evolved. The piece evolved from a quintet into a solo that went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and it had another catalog with it. Mm-hmm. So the idea of coming back from scores to written written dances returned later in a different way, a way to articulate something, because this process of making the dance was so interesting that I thought this is something that needs to be written about mm-hmm. so that people will know this is a great way to make dances. Mm-hmm. And we've used this process again in the making of the three-cornered hat. We worked on that for two years, where I'd give them I'd give them some kind of score, question, proposition, and they'd go to places like Fuse and they they do it, and then we'd come back and we'd see where it went mm-hmm. and put it into something that was co- not improvised, mm-hmm. that was choreographed. And then last year, we took the choreographed piece. The 70-minute choreographed piece, and we we reversed it. We turned it inside out. We improvised it. Mm-hmm. So we did a show that was improvised, and Stefan was improvising the music. They could use all the sets, and they improvised it. So that was a process three years before we could get so we could improvise with that. Mm-hmm. For me, that's um, a show. A shift and an exciting way to work. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any obstacles or uns- unexpected obstacles that you feel you found, I guess, on your way to where you are now? Well, I think it depends on the lens that. There have been so many people who have volunteered hours and hours and hours of work to, to make these pieces come out. Mm-hmm. And there have been so many uh, collaborations as I try and see what is dance about. So I, I propose it to a kind of music or I propose it to a kind of videographer or I propose it to a dancer. And sometimes the proposition is open-ended, like I'll just see what comes up. But sometimes I have an idea of what that is, what I want to see. Mm-hmm. The clearer and clearer I am in articulating what I want, the farther away from what I, what I imagine I get. So... The lens of thinking I knowing what I'm doing Mm -hmm. and entering shifts, and I realize how little I know. Mm -hmm. I think some people might consider it an obstacle, but in the time I was in New York and I knew I was going home to make the book, Mm And I, I think I mentioned I, I had the ticket coming home 
but I had and I had free dance classes during the whole time I was there I was able to get free dance classes through scholarships and things but so I bought a tennis ball tin of protein powder mm-hmm. for ten dollars and I had enough for 45 cent liter of orange juice and there was a place that you could get falafel. So the thing about New York is it's like the most expensive and the cheapest. Mm -hmm. So if you can find the cheapest. Mm -hmm. So I found a place. I'd have the the liter of orange juice with protein powder after dance class Mm -hmm. and before rehearsal. And then after rehearsal, I'd go and I'd get two falafels, 75 cents for Mm $1.50. And then I'd eat those. So I lived that way for several weeks. Mm-hmm. And then I had $50 left, so I went and had a facial. Mm-hmm. And then I went home. <laughs> but it was, like, it was like, so somebody might consider that an mm-hmm. obstacle. Mm-hmm. At the time, I just thought it was figuring things out. Yeah. I didn't consider that particular thing an obstacle. I think also I can see in conversations with people that aren't in our field. For example, I was part of an executive leadership um, uh, thing over the past seven months this year. And uh, we were trying to find, we had a very fast time to find common denominators. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, we're all executive directors. I said, okay. 60 to 8 hour weeks there was this kind of dead silence in my group and I realized oh maybe that's just artists executive directors mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it was, so it was that kind of thing like that so but that's not an obstacle that's, that's what we do mm-hmm. it's an obstacle for enough sleep <laughs> it's an obstacle if 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 that's not your priority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. If you were going to choose, I guess if there was one artist left in the world, who would you choose that to be? Well, it seems pretty clear that the people that made the Sphinx mm-hmm. knew more than most of us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Oh, for um, the up-and-coming generation of emerging artists, do you have any advice or something that you'd like to say? Well, The enormous training that we do, just because you do 10,000 hours doesn't mean that's it. But simultaneous to those 10,000 hours, I feel like it's critical that we do as much practice 
in one of the great spiritual disciplines so that when we have an articulated body, we could be a conduit for something worth... We could be a conduit. Thank you. Um, If you had a superpower, what superpower would that be? Well, it would certainly help a lot if I was conscious. Mm. You mean like um, like an extraordinary consciousness? No. Just a conscious. <laughs> All, right. All right, that brings us to the um, game. We play an either-or game, usually that I grew up with watching on TV, that they would have, it was called the hot seat, and they would have someone, usually an artist or an uh, athlete, um, basically sit down and in the program, and they would do tw- 20 quick questions. And I learned the same game from my friend Natalie Gann. He learned the same game, yeah, years later. Years later. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, so uh, we usually do that. Uh, Is it a psychological time. game? No, no we, we just offer you two words or two things, and you pick your favorite. Yeah, would you like to play? It's a lot of fun. Because <laughs> it's, actually, it, it's just words we pick, but uh, you can stop at any point if you don't like it. I'll try it. That's good. <laughs> All right. Um, it's, our, it's our closing ritual. It's a closing, yeah. Either or game. Salt or lime? Lime. Socks or leg warmers? Socks. Lakes or oceans? Oceans. Paper or pencil? Paper. Caramel or vanilla? Vanilla. Mountains or shores? Shores. Zebra or donkey? Donkeys. Zebra? <laughs> Pictures or paintings? Paintings. Leaves or grass? Leaves. Black or white? White. Fishes or birds? Basketball or soccer? Soccer. Cloud or sky? Clouds. Dice or cards? Cards. Diego or Rush? <laughs> I don't have an answer to that question. <laughs> Beer or wine? Wine. Lions or kitten? Lions. Simple or simpler? Simpler. Tea or coffee? Tea. Wood or marley? Wood. Sunset or sunrise? Sunrise. sunrise. Thank you very much. Thank that you. was fun. Thank you so much, Jonathan. <laughs> that was lovely. If there's anything you'd like to say. To yeah, there's lots I'd like to say. <laughs> sure. All right. I'm all yours. <laughs> Thank you.
I think, to trace what is going on in Vancouver is a really important thing to do. Like how, how it arrived at there. So I've only just given you a couple of threads. And you need to check your facts, but for a long while, BC was the least funded of all the provinces. So now that there are more than one generation mm-hmm. of choreographers in Vancouver, mm-hmm. so that it grows exponentially, something needs to be done to shift that. Mm-hmm if that remains this case. Mm-hmm. Or else you're gonna get a mass exodus of BC artists. What is the possibility of that? I think also that there's no longer the situation where you either are a choreographer or why bother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think now there's a, a complete array of possibilities to work at mm-hmm. in dance. Mm-hmm. And I think the community, the, the moving into community dance mm-hmm. that perhaps was begun by Jean Cunningham at UBC. Mm-hmm. She was an educator and she had to work through phys ed departments all over the world. Mm-hmm. And whenever she went in, she just taught dance. Mm-hmm. So she taught dance. I don't know why he keeps coming up in this interview, but Cornelius Fisher Crowder came up. <laughs> he took them all to see dances. The man who does community art was one of those sports people that saw went to see dance. Mm-hmm. He came to see our not only but also. Mm-hmm. And he now he now does the community art mm-hmm. through Woodward's. Mm. So it's very difficult to actually see the path, but keep collecting who was before you and where did they go mm-hmm. to keep seeing how that actually happened. Because something that hap- has happened in the time that I've been here is that this, the strengths of hip-hop mm-hmm. have brought a physicality that was just had been lost mm-hmm. However, what, ga- what was given up with that were dancers no longer move through space. Mm-hmm. So the question is, do you, what are we looking for and how are we going to shift it? And how do we get the balance of it? Mm-hmm. And who's going to start the composition school? <laughs> Fair. How is it that Canada doesn't have one? Well. Yeah, that's really amazingly strange to me still. Yeah. Have you thought about starting that? Mm-hmm. I think of it all the time. I remember, I think, one of the workshops, I did, one of my first wor- workshops as a dancer was at the WOW, at your uh, WOW summer intensive, which was, you know, I thought that was a normal thing, and then I got out and I realized that that's the only composition class I've done. Like, sort of, it was that, that it was named as composition class. I think it was with Soufé and with you. And I, I learned a lot from it. I still remember. So, yeah. I just have a history question. Um, Edam, 
and mountain. Oh, I forgot to mention mountain. What was so? From my understanding from doing these podcasts so far, there's there's really well-funded larger companies, and then there's a whole kind of second tier of underfunded smaller companies at the time. This is an important thing. What's your question? Um, I guess the relationship between uh, all like Mountain and um, Edam and um, like Terminal City, Terminal City, uh, just as, as a sense of community. Oh, we were all friends? Yeah, or uh, what, was there we support? All, was there... Yeah, there was support. We were all friends. Where did you go for drinks? People's houses. Uh, where was everybody living? I lived uh, out by the PE. and uh-huh. um, Peter lived on Point Grey, and then he lived where he lives now. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lola lived downtown and then over by Commercial Drive, mm-hmm. Mountain used uh, the Shadbolt, mm-hmm. and then Lee Eisler took that over mm-hmm. to, for Jumpstart, that company, mm-hmm. you talk to Raymond Milne, who was in Jumpstart. Mm-hmm. Terry and Savannah lived in this remarkable studio on Carroll Street that Noam then took over, mm-hmm. and then it was taken over by location agents, mm-hmm. so it left dance, right. which was a pity. I did a piece there called All Flames Are Waiting to Kill All Moths, and it was... <laughs> Savannah and Terry had a long dinner on the balcony, and we'd pull up the blind and see the meeting and then put it down again, I remember. Hmm. And then long studio. So Holy Body Tattoo had a big influence in Vancouver because mm-hmm. they were another generation, and they, they were under the... They saw what Edward Locke did, mm-hmm. which was put Canada on the international map mm-hmm. and they went in that direction mm-hmm. and you can see from the monumental that they did last year that they know that like a formula mm-hmm. they know how to do that thing like a formula yep. which is a very useful thing in the downtown New York improvisational world it was a, it the essence of it is about researching till you can progress the actual physicality of dance. Mm. It's not about going for fame. It's a different thing. So you have these other threads mm-hmm. where you think, well, how come they're not like flying around? Well, it's just like it's because the values from their from different people's history mm-hmm. lead you in different places. Mm-hmm. Like what inspires you? Mm-hmm. And that's really important to see to see in the matrix and to know that there was that funding of those companies early on because that's being suggested that that happens now because mm-hmm. there's just too many all over the yeah. place. So we should just choose a couple. And then support them and give them their off. Yeah, so this is a kind of thing that you need to, mm. you need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Mm. Actually, there's a section that I kind of want to keep asking if you have a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. I guess... Um, Edam. Um, so you went into how you guys got together, and then you passed over seven years. And I'm just wondering a little bit. Um, I guess the the good stuff about that, uh, maybe there's some bad stuff that you feel comfortable talking about, and maybe why it, Edam broke open. Uh, 
Jay and Barbara started Kokoro after four years of Edom. Then four of us stayed. Ahmed had left. He had moved to Toronto. So four of us stayed together till 89. And Lola stayed in Vancouver. Yes. Mm -hmm. Am I right? I think so. Mm -hmm. mm, I may not have it right. Yes, he was working with De Rosier mm -hmm. and did the music there. I think we just, Peter Ryan moved to Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And I think we were all ready to take on our own work. Mm -hmm. when, when you work with a whole group of people, there's a lot of decisions and a lot of meetings that have to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I think it became like it was more important to let's just make art. Mm -hmm. However, the idea of having a number of artists together is a great one, and the funders really appreciated it because they were terrified there'd be seven different companies coming up and they would have to address the funding of that. Which ended up happening post Eden, correct? Because everybody from that ends up to see it. So it was, it's a natural kind of. There are trends in each of the provinces. So when uh, when the independence started and people were starting in Quebec, dancers had access to um, at the Canada Council. You could get B and A grants. They were like individual grants. Mm -hmm. Dancers had access to them in provincially in mm -hmm. Quebec, so that allowed them to just develop and develop and develop mm -hmm. because. Uh, they because they had the time and the funding to to get a studio, mm -hmm. so those kind of things are the the political trends. So I often feel like I owe my career to Trudeau's OFY grants, mm -hmm. opportunities for youth. So I started teaching as soon as I started dancing, mm -hmm. and each summer I had an OFY grant to start summer camps do things like this and, mm -hmm. and it so by the time 74 arrived it felt like I could do, this is it I could do what I wanted mm -hmm. because it was a sense of possibility mm -hmm. and it was consistently there to be accessed and, and that it was reliable in a way I, I didn't you didn't think like that mm -hmm. it just Mm -hmm. was there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so my first job from graduating school was teaching in a private high school. And I taught improvisation, composition, history, criticism, and technique. Mm -hmm. Like every day we did like different stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, then I was invited to be the movement coach at Stratford Festival. And I didn't know what to do because I was teaching at this school. Mm -hmm. So one of the teachers said, just go and talk to the principal. So I went and talked to the principal <coughs> who said, oh, if you've been invited to Stratford, just go. We'll find a substitute. <laughs> so that was an example of uh, the flexibility of form. Mm -hmm. 
And the training, the, so was at that time EDAM the sort of the training area as well where you guys all t- uh, took class or, or was it other places? Uh, Mountain had their own space, correct, down on Ontario, uh, uh, no, Quebec and right near the police station. No, that was Dance Corps later. Oh, I see, I see. Mm-hmm. Dance Corps was Harvey Meller and Cornelius Fisher Credo. I don't know when they started. You'll have to ask them. Mm-hmm. I don't know the dates of that. Because active kind of dance houses at, where well, I guess during that period would have been Terminal City, Western, Western Front, Front. Uh-huh. Uh, Jamie and Giza had Prism, and I, I don't know its location. I think it might have been on Hastings, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure. Everybody had and then Anna Wyman had a studio on the North Shore, mm-hmm. and Still Paula there. Ross had a studio out at McDonald and Broadway. Uh, and Anna Wyman's still there? Yes. Not in the same place, but she's still there. In the North Shore? Yes. No, not exactly. Where, yeah. So by her being an established company, she, she set the ground for people to be, for the funders to know that there were going to be companies that they would have to look at. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Yeah. No, that's it for me. Wow. Thank, Thank you. So you. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you very much for your time. Goodbye, little people inside of the recorder. <laughs> we'll see you soon. Yes, we'll uh, hope to have you at some point again. Yeah, we'd love to have you back. No, rien de rien. Goodbye to, how about a time machine? A deep bite into history. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I had a really great time. Also, Jennifer would like to make a correction about something she mentioned halfway through the interview, that the 1978 contact intensive was taught by Andrew Harwood, not Peter Ryan. Um, our rash is gone. Uh, he quit, so it's just just me from here on in. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> I hear. Oh, he's back! Arash is back, back from the dead. Uh, so I wonder. I'm not back like Slim Shady. I'm back like myself. I, just soon. I bet you're wondering how we got to Delta <laughs> and why it's three in the morning and why I'm holding the shovel right now. Were you recording by yourself without me? I, I I just thought I'd do it with your buddy. You are such a bad person. I'm a bad partner. Speaking of. That's morally wrong. And speaking of that, I want to recommend the podcast. Oh, okay. Wait, before uh, you do that, go ahead. I just want to remind all our little friends inside of this little microphone to subscribe, um, pay your taxes, or or you know or don't pay your taxes, but just make it clear that you're not paying your taxes. Um, send us some hate mail or some love letters if you wish. Uh, we'd love any feedback that you have for this podcast. Um, yeah, and then please like it on oh, um, wait, what, 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 iTunes. Where should they email to? Uh, Howaboutatimemachine at gmail.com. That's howaboutatimemachine at gmail.com. Yes, feel free to email us there if you have any questions or suggestions. And um, the apps for non-Apple users is... Uh, so I use, for most of my podcasts, I use Podcast Republic or Stitcher or Spotify. I'm Apple-free. Which, if there's anybody else out there like me... Apples are good for you, man. Seriously. Uh, but <laughs> I'll put you back on the ground. Uh, 
Um, What's well, a fucking violent podcast now? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's all I have to say. You go. Oh, yeah. So, the podcast recommendation um, is the... You know, as usual, of course, I'm going to recommend Waking Up with Sam Harris. <laughs> uh, if you even hate me for it, I'm just going to... Um, then why I'm recommending it is because uh, this episode is called What is More Progress? And it's... Um, Peter Singer, right? Yes. Uh, Sam Harris speaks with uh, philosopher Peter Singer about the foundations of morality. And Peter Singer is fantastic. If you don't know his work, I, I strongly recommend him. Yes. He's really a rock star. Uh, in, in philosophy and the world uh, Western, ex- Western philosophy yes in the ex- Western world wait we're in the West uh, and then uh, <laughs> expanding the circle of our moral concerns politics free speech conspiracy thinking Edward Snowden the importance of intentions World War II euthanasia eating in quotation happy cows and other topics so um, and it's only about an hour and 36 minutes so hey listen to it after this yeah or stop listening to us just listen to them okay uh, did you have one yes I do I just want to recommend um, apparently I'm only allowed to say one podcast but the one I'd like to say this week is called the Global Elections Podcast it is one of my favorite podcasts out there it's, they're pretty short episodes like 20 minutes um, they're done by Jason Manchester and he's really 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 good at what he does um, he's he's funnier than us he's much more professional he's got much better recording equipment and he's talking about uh, each it's released about every two weeks, and it's just going through all whatever current elections are happening. So it's nice to keep up to date, uh, and he gives you pretty in-depth analysis and speaks to a lot of people who know a lot, <laughs> depending on the election. Wow. And hey, Diego, you're doing well. If you want to recommend more, you have no free will. All right, Go ahead I'm, and going do it. To, I'm going to do it. Hey. So that's Global Elections Podcast by Jason Manchester. Okay, Jason. thanks very much. That Thank was a great podcast. Great. I'll, <laughs> save, I'll save the rest of them for next time alright see you guys next time thank you for sticking with us we love you for being here and even if you're not here we still love you I have no love left goodbye (laughs) bye